Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Energy prices are through the roof, particularly gas prices in Europe. But don't higher prices mean we use less and other alternatives become more viable? In short... Does the pricing mechanism help to sort things out or does the government need to step in? After all, in Europe, where the gas crisis could be so much worse, prices are being subsidised, which is keeping inflation from going even higher. So government intervention or let the pricing mechanism run its course? We probably already know the answer to that, but that is today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Now, Steve, on, a, on another podcast I do, and hey, you know, a bit of cross-promotion for me, it's called The Y Curve, uh, Ycurve.com. On it this week, and... Well, you know, why, why spell W-H-Y, that's yeah, correct. Yeah, why, yeah exactly, okay. yeah. Uh, mm. not, yeah, it's a play on the Y. You know you know what we're doing there. Anyway, uh, mm. we, we spoke this week to uh, an academic at the Centre for European Studies about the gas crisis in, in Europe, which obviously is stemming from this cut in supplies that we're seeing from, from Russia. He seemed to think to an extent that prices are going to fix things. So we've got 30 to 40% of gas coming from Russia, and it's becoming very expensive, obviously, as those supplies reduce, as uh, Putin uh, you know, reduces supplies even more. Uh, and LNG is also uh, expensive, obviously, because it's going up as well because of a shortage of gas generally. But it's therefore becoming more realistic as an alternative to buying gas from Russia. So facilities are being ramped up for winter to cover the shortfall using LNG, a lot of which was being sold to Asia. Now Asia can no longer afford to buy it, uh, and therefore demand from Asia is going to fall. There's going to be an increase in demand from Europe, uh, and uh, and Europe is building up the capability. So it won't fill that 30 to 40% shortfall, but the fact that those prices have risen for LNG uh, means that in the short term, uh, you know, if there's a, a 15% cut in consumption, then maybe, which is a lot, but that's what the EU is talking about, then uh, maybe they can cover the shortfall. So even in the short term, he reckons the price mechanism finds an answer. Uh, it might not be comfortable, but it, it can happen without having to kowtow to Mr. Putin. The downside, of course, is that it still sees prices going up. That's the whole argument, uh, which is why things suddenly become viable. Uh, and it means that, you know, the poor people can't afford to uh, heat their homes. But you can sort that out with government subsidies, obviously. Well, you can, but the, what is going to happen? I have my doubts. But you know, you've, you've seen this is actually. I think I, you saw the paper, a little thing I wrote on um, an argument by a bunch of neoclassical economists that ten uh, percent fall in energy supplies from Russia would only cause a one point five percent fall in German GDP. Mm. And in fact, the the pure neoclassical argument, the straight Cobb Douglas production function, said that a ten percent fall in energy would cause a zero point four percent fall in GDP. So no big deal. Now, uh, 
again, this is just the whole fixation that prices can fix everything and that you can substitute one input for another. So if you run out of energy, you can just put workers inside of the blast furnace instead. Um, and that'll that'll cause the coal to be, uh, you know, to, to, that, that, that'll you know, cause the, the steel to form out of iron ore. Uh, it, it's, it's a, again, you're not, the you're not proposing burning poor people, Steve, I hope. That's... Uh... Well, you, the, <laughs> the classical economists think it can be done. What I'm saying is they've got this vision of easy substitutability. Mm. So if you lose one input, you can replace it with another. And this this is just when it comes to energy, that is nonsense. When yeah. you lose energy, you simply can't produce output. And that is what uh, – and so the price mechanism isn't going to get you around for that. Right, but the price mechanism might add to the substitution. So if it is possible to switch from, from gas, which is coming through a pipeline from Russia, and replace it with uh, liquid national gas, uh, liquefied natural, ga- natural gas, which can be uh, unliquefied and sent through pipelines uh, from, from the coast, and they believe they have that capability to ramp that up fairly quickly, and it indeed is already happening. Mm. So you don't need Putin's gas. Uh, then you're starting to see supplies picking back up again. And then perhaps, you know, Putin is going to start saying, well, hang on a second, I'm losing out on revenue on this. Um, so maybe he will actually start turning his taps back on again. All of that is being driven by the by the pricing mechanism. Uh, you know, and he, 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 Putin might realise he can get more from Germany uh, and the rest of Europe than he can from, from China, for example. So again, it's the it's, to an extent he's right, isn't he, that the price mechanism does have quite an influential part to play in all of this. It'll, it'll, yeah, you can reallocate where current supplies go. Whether it's going to cause supplies to rise to substitute for the cutoff for Russian, that's the other side of things. Now, yeah. uh, that has happened in the past. So, um, uh, if you look at what happened in, in Texas, for example, when uh, OPEC's second price rise, putting oil from $10 to $40 a barrel occurred back in, in 79, uh, that then made a whole range of of oil fields in Texas much more profitable. So there was an enormous expansion, credit-driven expansion of oil production out of Texas. And then, of course, you had a crash in oil prices from 40 back to 10 again, and that wiped out those businesses. So the price mechanism can encourage the the opening up of of existing resources which aren't being fully used, but it can't it, it still can't get over again. My, from from last week's podcast, things take time, mm. and then to do it, you need you need credit, you need debt finance to enable it. And that by the time you've got it done, you might well find the circumstances are entirely different. So that uh, that that boom of oil prices in Texas in 1979 and 81 caused a crash in Texas in 82 84. Um, so the timing the timing did not work out. Yeah, and we find you, so the same thing. We could be investing in LNG, and then sort of, and then it's not needed uh, down the track. Uh, so and also the, the other thing. I mean, this this is this is one of the things I had my worries about climate change. We're going to see uh, so like some severe impact. So if you have like India would be the classic example with this. If you have a dramatic increase in the number of uh, of dangerous wet bulb temperature events, where the temperature approaches level where people cannot perspire enough to uh, avoid a heat uh, a heat breakdown of their body, uh, then there's going to be enormous demand to turn air conditioning units on, mm. uh, to buy new air conditioning units and so on, which is meaning you're going to buy mo- burn more coal to power those uh, those um, uh, air conditioning units, which increases the rate of, cli- of climate breakdown. So 
you know, we're, we're backing ourselves into a corner here, and I don't think the price mechanism is the way out. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it and it is also, also driving coal-fired power stations in Europe. I think some of those are getting turned back on again in desperation, aren't they? So none of that is mm. helping climate change at all. So, um, yeah, but... The the point, I mean, his point was, well, okay, 30 to 40% of gas, we can maybe get halfway, you know, we can deal with a 15% reduction, which the EU is talking about. I mean, it's a voluntary reduction, which means, of course, it'll never happen. But if there's a 15% reduction in the consumption of gas from Russia, and they're, they're, they're talking about things like, you know, just turn your thermometer down by one degree and wear jumpers and, uh, you know, just think about your energy consumption that little bit more. That'll bring down consumption by 15%. But if prices are going up as well, then industry, which is heavily reliant on on, on gas or energy, is going to find their input costs are going up markedly. And I think that's what you're, the point you're trying to make, isn't it? You, you, you're, going yeah. to, you're going to see the downturn in the economy resulting from that. You have to. Yeah, yeah, we've... Uh, and this, this is we people talk about growth versus degrowth. Uh, there's really two forms of of degrowth. There's a degrowth you do in an organised fashion, and the degrowth you experience because the system can't cope with the circumstances you've let it get into. And we've got into these circumstances by believing the price system can fix everything. Mm. So I don't have a great deal of enthusiasm for your. But to elaborate on his points because this. This just sort of shows the extent to which economists work in a in a, a the sort of a whitebird world world where you can draw uh, curves on a diagram and they don't relate to the physical world, but you've got to actually produce things using inputs. Yeah, well, I have to say, I I, I wasn't convinced by his argument that that you know you you're going to fix this problem without seeing a major downturn in the in the economy, and Mr. Putin isn't going to. Uh, uh, respond because he's going to see what impact he's having on on Europe and and the rest of the world and quite enjoying it I would have thought so uh, yeah I can't I can't see it fixing the problem but uh, you know it's it, it maybe it goes part of the way uh, to fixing it if we look at you know some element of the the role that price has to pay in all of this and on uh, taking the broader question of inflation mm. can the price mechanism fix inflation without Getting the, the Fed involved, so if well, the you know, price mechanism is is inflation. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but it does it does itself correct. Uh, so prices go higher, we buy less, demand softens, uh, prices come down, inflation over. I mean, without the Fed pushing up interest rates, which hits own homeowners, increases the cost of borrowing for businesses, uh, and you know potentially makes the situation worse. Would it be better, in other words, if we let it, inflation see its course? The price mechanism do it thing, and central banks actually did nothing at all. Well, I'm actually, I mean, I'm unbiased in that direction as it happens because I don't think that, again, there's the hammer and nail issue again that the hammer they've got as interest rates. Uh, therefore, they see the supply driven inflation as, as demand driven inflation, which can be beaten off by putting up interest rates and causing factor prices to fall, uh, where factor prices means wages. And that's, you know, wages already falling. So, you know, the it, it, you don't want somebody coming in with the wrong tool into the circumstances, and that's what central banks are doing this time around. So I, I would be, I would prefer to say them uh, what what they should be really doing, and this is this would go against what they've done for the last forty years, is set the interest rate level so that you eliminate asset price bubbles, because that's where most of the borrowed money is gone. And but the thing is, the Fed have got so caught, the, the central banks and around the world in general have got so caught up in promoting asset price bubbles um, that they can't bring themselves to do without that tool as well. 
But I think, yeah. I'd, so that I'd, would have to I'd be quite to high, see... wouldn't it? So you set it high enough that people... Oh, I, I, I think what it's done now is enough to protect the wind out of the asset bubbles because people, you know, we, we, you had people taking out mortgages on the rates of 2 and 3% for the mortgage because the uh, the base rate set by the Federal Reserve was zero. Uh, and now they're facing rates of 5% and suddenly the servicing costs are through the roof and they're making their own decisions uh, at that level to you know, try to get out of debt. Uh, and they're no longer expecting the asset price inflation to finance their positions. So I don't think it's going to go any higher than now. I think we can actually have like effectively a negative real rate of inflation. So the, the rate of interest, so the rate of inflation, you know, running at say eight percent, and the and the reserve rate at three, uh, that will be enough to knock out the asset price inflation. And then it's a question of how you manage that decline in people's equity. That's more what I'd be looking at than trying to control the rate of inflation. Yeah, like you take your you, rate of interest. You, you're knocking the price down on my house, Steve, where the, uh, where the, where the mortgage, if I hadn't renegotiated it just before Christmas, uh, and I renegotiate it now, it'd be 900 pounds more per month. Which uh, mm, you mm. know, and that and that's before you know interest rates have gone up even even more, as they keep doing. So uh, yeah, I mean, I'd be getting to the stage where I actually can't afford to pay the mortgage anymore. I'd have to sell the house at a, at, at a discount. And uh, yeah, you have a lot of very unhappy campers if you do that. But that rate that you're talking about obviously is dependent on on how highly leveraged we are. That percentage and would be much and higher. The most we're much leveraged, the more leveraged we've been in history. And this, yeah. again, central banks have let this happen. They've, and this is why I'm so angry about neoclassical economics in general, because it says, don't look at what matters, look at our model. And <laughs> what they've said doesn't, doesn't matter is the, um, is the, um, the level of credit. They've, they've always ignored it. They've always got it wrong about how credit drives the economy. They believe credit is just a redistribution of spending power. So they, even though they record the data on private debt and they therefore record the data on change in private debt, which is credit, uh, they don't take any of account in their modeling. And, and, and what they've done is the credit has driven up asset prices. Again, part of the theory tells them that credit doesn't drive up asset prices. And being good neoclassical economists, they don't check their their arguments against the data. You do a quick check of the data and I find correlation coefficients of 0.6 between change in the change of mortgage debt and change in house prices and also change in the change in margin debt and share prices. According to them, they simply assume it's zero. And they've, you know, they've, they've led us into this this trap. So, mm. you know, uh, the trouble is... The, so, but they if you're saying have- if we hadn't gone down this road, or we somehow miraculously managed to get that, uh, you know, that we deleveraged to such an extent where things were manageable, uh, then we should we should just set an, an, a flat interest rate, and that is enough to uh, discourage uh, uh, investments in in assets which are, you know, speculative assets, and and I guess that would also encourage more uh, more money to be uh, in, invested as well if you're getting a higher percentage return, you know, or savings. Well, we've, we've, we've let banks end up as being, you know, Keynes put it beautifully back in the um, in the in the 1937 in the General Theory of Employment, I think was the paper, and he said uh, he's very disparaging about the the stock market in general and said that the. Um, the, the the flexibility that the stock market appears to give you is nothing like the actual situation for the producers in the real economy. So the fact that you can sell out of uh, out of wheat and into barley and the futures market or the commodities market in one day does not mean that a farmer can change from wheat to barley in one day. Yeah. Um, so and then on, on on top of that, he said when the actions when the management of your economy comes down to the actions of a casino, the job is likely to be all done. 
Well, we've had 40 years now of central banks ill doing this job, and now they're paying the price for it. But we're paying the price as well, of course. Yeah. So, okay. So that. So, the, but we're saying then the Fed should do nothing. It is the pricing mechanism that would that would see us through uh, this this increase in, in in inflation. It will self-correct. Prices. Well, would, what, it, what, it, what, what it won't self-correct is incomes of the people at the bottom yeah. of the scale. So then, so the guy I was talking to about the the, the fuel crisis in uh, in in Europe this uh, this winter. I mean, he was acknowledging that, you know, prices are going to be very elevated and you need to do something to look after those people who can't afford to meet those elevated prices. So his suggestion is that they have a basic price for fuel for low income earners and everyone else, the high users uh, that you want to, you know, get get them to change their behavior. uh, They pay an elevated price. So rather than just increasing welfare payments, which would be another way of doing it, you actually I mean, what you could actually do is almost like have a um, staggered pricing like we do for tax brackets, you know, where there's a, a low price up to a certain level of consumption and then, you know, have other levels uh, where where the price increases depending depending on usage. The more you use, the more you pay per unit, almost like the, uh, you know, the opposite of, uh, of economies of scale. Yeah, and it, it, it's not the pricing mechanism now. It's admitting the pricing mechanism it's, doesn't it's work yeah, to yeah, say that. Yeah, yeah, it's broken because the pricing mechanism only works as neoclassical economists think it works if the pricing mechanism fairly determines incomes as well as determining prices. Now, they have a theory called the marginal productivity theory of income distribution that says the wage that you, the income that you earn, whether that's wages or profits, reflects the productivity of the last element added to the production system. So if the last worker adds $1,000 per week to the net output of the firm, uh, then the wage for all the workers in that firm is $1,000 per week. You can't actually identify the marginal worker. It's, you know, that's that's an average overall. So the surplus above that generates profits, and that is also supposed to be based on the marginal productivity of the last machine you add to the production system. It all books out very neatly. It's all quite coherent, and it's completely wrong. <laughs> uh, apart okay. from that. Okay. Yeah. Apart from that, apart from being completely wrong, it works out really well. But what that means is they, as well as saying that the price mechanism will choose the price where demand equals supply, they're also assuming that the income distribution is fair. Now, what we've seen in the real world and certainly the last 40 years, a courtesy again of neoclassical economists, is the execu- execution of raw power. The workers, workers cannot bargain. Individual workers can't bargain against a large corporation. They needed unions to do that. We've pretty much destroyed unions. So the bargaining power is completely skew if Workers did not get their marginal product. In fact, what you're getting is a share in the productivity of the energy system you're part of, and you're bargaining over how much of the surplus, uh, how much of the uh, surplus energy when you're paying nothing for the energy in the first place. We don't actually, mm. you know, nobody made the coal. Okay, we're just exploiting the fact that it exists. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, okay. and while we're going through all of this, you know, the energy companies, you know, we're all struggling to pay our fuel bills. The energy companies mm-hmm. obviously are recording record profits right now. Yeah, but the thing is, it's the essential role of energy that they're missing out on here, and this is why I've just come back to the whole thing of what if you don't have any energy coming in? What's your output? Your output is zero. Mm. Uh, and and this is like this paper that I had to go at, which I was, the, the Rudy Buckman was the was the lead author on it, and it said that uh, incredulous that uh, the Leontief production function, which is the one that I use, that said that output is directly proportional to energy, said that energy must be a serious bottleneck. Well, yes, it is, Rudy. Okay, no energy in, no nothing comes out the other end. So 
Uh, so you can't solve that with the price mechanism. What you can do is reallocate where the pain is experienced. Yeah. So what you're saying is if Europe can pay a higher price and Asia can't reach that price, then it's going to be Asian output that falls rather than European output. Um, uh, and you can substitute you know, liquid national gas. Yes, okay, you can use that instead of you know, LPG can be used as a substitute for liquid national gas in a lot of production processes. I'm sure not all, but most of them, there was a pretty reasonable substitutability between those forms of energy. But you can't substitute non-energy for energy. Yeah, and you can't also. I mean, the the, the other argument is that, you know, well, the, the, these rising prices could be good for, for the green economy because uh, it suddenly makes uh, uh, alternative energy uh, more cost effective so you might get investment going into into green and renewable resources but of course not if if people see this as being a, a short-term demand problem or supply problem uh, i should say and uh, and, the, it, and the prices it, yeah. will come down again i mean it's a risk but, it's a risk to assume that they won't yeah but it's a but it's it's it, this is not short term i mean hmm. uh what what we're getting uh at this time now is we're striking the limits to growth. We are striking. We're running out of the physical resources. We're not exhausting them. I mean, there's enough coal, apparently, even at current rates of growth of energy consumption, for us to fuel the global economy on coal for the next three centuries. But if we did that, we would have a planet with 2,000 parts per million carbon dioxide and uh you know, quite possibly the tachyderms would be the only things left alive on the surface of the planet. So uh, we are facing constraints from all sorts of directions, and the price system is not going to solve those constraints. But leaving the price mechanism would solve them is what got us into this shit in the first place. Yeah. So if you've got a, a, a resource that is constrained, then the pricing mechanism doesn't work. That's what we're saying, isn't it? So Because in theory, so, yeah, you, if, if the prices price are rising, producers yeah. will know that they need to produce more to match demand. But if they can't because there's supply constraints, then the price mechanism doesn't work because of the rationing yeah. that's in place. Uh, you, you can certainly encourage like a shift from uh, fossil fuel-based energy to renewable and nuclear, for example, by making fossil that much more expensive. So yes, okay, the investment will be directed towards what's called green green energy rather than brown energy uh but again the time that's going to take to happen uh, uh it, it is not going to mean you're going to solve this problem now so you're going to get a price spike out of it uh and the price spike will then say well what did that do in terms of the distribution of income can people at the bottom end of the scale who are still required for the economy to function can they earn enough to pay their cost the answer is no they're going to go bankrupt well you only way you can solve that is you've got to give them cash some other way you can't rely upon the market price mechanism you have to give the government stepping in in some fashion and even your pro price mechanism friend there was saying you've got to change the price mechanism so that it doesn't screw the poor yeah, exactly. So the price mechanism doesn't work. Hey, look, Harold Wallazin, uh, you're forgiven for not knowing who he is. Uh, he wrote uh, for the, he, he worked for the US Bureau of Labor Statistics. He wrote for the Journal of Political Economy in 1959. He wrote about how, whether the price mechanism works at all when there's a shortage of supply. He said, when the average of all prices creep upwards, do relative prices continue to change in response to shifts in demand and supply? If they do not, this may be in the long run pose a serious threat. If the price mechanism falters in performing its rationing function during a creeping inflation, the efficiency of the economic system and presumably its growth potential would be seriously impaired. So, he, I mean, he's saying back then that, you know, the price mechanism doesn't really work that well if you've got a, a shortage of supply. And you don't know who the author was? Yeah, Harold Wallazin. 
Oh, Wallerton. Just- okay, I thought. That's a very realistic statement. I better take a look at that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's true. <laughs> 1959. It, long <laughs> enough ago for us to forget his uh, his reasoning. Well, yeah, again, this is reasoning, which look at the aggregate economy rather than microeconomics. Yeah. And the trouble is we've had a economic theory, neoclassical economic, which is absolutely microeconomic oriented in its thinking and wrong about microeconomics. Uh, and then that has determined the argument that the price mechanism can solve everything. It solves everything on the blackboard. But the conditions of the blackboard don't match the conditions of the real world. So, uh, like, for example, one of the one of the classics is, according to neoclassical theory, if you reduce the level of output, your per unit cost will fall. The reason being they believe that firms produce on a point uh, where the cost of each additional unit is higher than the cost, the variable cost of each mm. unit that preceded it, because you're getting lower efficiency because you're working your variable units past the optimal point for its machinery. That is bullshit. When yeah. you look at the empirical world, firms operate below that point, and and, and this is. Well, you've, I, you I, say, I, you, well, you've explained that to me before, and I was thinking this is so counter to to my own experience in in the commercial world where economies of scale uh, kick in. And okay, you might have step changes where you need to invest in a uh, a bit more of whatever it is. It wouldn't be machinery in my case, but maybe it's a, a bit of uh, a bit of software, a bit of hardware. Uh, mm. And, uh, you know, so there's a step change at that point. But are you making that step change because you know you're going to get uh, so much more demand that, and therefore yeah, the, yeah. the costs go progressively will go down again? Yeah, and, and this is the thing. So if you're expanding output and, and a, in a major corporation within, with industrial production, uh, its cost will, it will fall. For fixed costs plunge because the fixed costs, you're dividing a fixed, set fixed cost by a higher volume. So your fixed costs fall. That's one element which, which supports you. But the other is that your variable costs are either constant or falling uh, because you've designed the factory to work at its maximum efficiency when it's 100% uh, used. And as you approach 100%, your per unit costs are likely to fall. Mm. You don't, your, your air conditioning unit is air conditioning the correct number of machines. Uh, the, you, you, when you put the ma- machines in to maintain the the internal environment of the factory, the temperature you need for whatever processes you're working on, uh, then the, the higher the uh, the the closer the factory approaches full capacity, the more you're using that air conditioning at the optimum level. You're not wasting any energy, which you are wasting when it has less than full capacity. So all these factors mean that real corporations face constant or falling marginal costs, and a cor- and the neoclassicals and- can't even get off a great found base because they don't they don't even have a supply curve in that situation. Right, but what if we got what if we got what if we got rationing though? So if we had and and if energy yeah. was a was a big factor in your input costs, and and there was some sort of mechanism that said, hey, the more you use, the more you're going to have to pay, then that then that would apply in that case. Yeah, well, in that case, rationing would be, you'd, you'd be actually paying a higher price for your inputs. Yeah. But like, I think I think we are going to need rationing or some form of state support for people at the bottom end of the income scale as energy costs rise because they are the absolutely fundamental costs, yeah. uh, energy and food. Uh, if you you know if you don't have those two, well, what can you do in a modern in but, a modern world? But it also means and, businesses are going to pay more, uh, obviously, for because they're not going to be subsidised to at least to the to the same extent. So their production costs are going to go up. So therefore, their outputs are, are going to uh, yeah. go, so we, go down, what, and what, the, and the cost of the goods that they sell is going to go up. Which is and going, what we have to see is we've got to see a redistribution towards the poor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's that's the opposite of what we're doing for the last forty years. Okay, the idea of the free. 
pre-market price mechanism, blah, blah, blah. Everybody gets what they deserve uh, and, every, and everybody can read. It's it's a microeconomic way of thinking about a macroeconomic problem and the microeconomic itself is wrong to begin with. You should listen to this podcast. You'll love it, Steve. Uh, <laughs> just make sure you've got a punch bag uh, close by. So I'm getting close to needing one. Yeah. <laughs> Finally then. Uh, let's. And we talked a little bit about the wage spiral uh, uh, last week and the, the preoccupation the Fed and other central banks have got about, you know, we don't want to see inflation uh, coming from people wanting more money, pushing up prices. So they want, you know, prices are going up, so people want more money to uh, to pay for stuff. Therefore, that increases the costs of stuff. And uh, and, and therefore, they want more money again because inflation is, is going in this upward spiral. Does that actually happen or does the price mechanism stop that happening? So, for example, if people want more money uh, so that they can buy more or buy the same, actually, because inflation has, has pushed prices up, won't companies at some point say, hang on, we can see what's happening here? You know, if we if we keep on paying people more and more, well, you can see why they want more because we want them, and we want them to have more because we want them to buy our stuff. But if we keep on um, uh, taking the same margins uh, and push prices up, this is going to go on forever. At some point, after maybe one cycle, aren't companies going to say, well, 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 we'll meet those wage demands and we'll squeeze all our other costs to keep prices low because people now have more money to create demand? Isn't that how it's going to – and wouldn't they be smart enough to go, we only have to squeeze our margins for a little while for this inflation to, to, to blow itself out? Well – um yeah i mean the the margins partly what you get to to counter uh like when you had the classic wage price spiral and this is something by the way that philip spoke about in his 1956 paper yeah. he, he said that what causes uh, the rate, rate of change of factor prices is the unemployment rate the rate of change of the unemployment rate and the uh wage price spirals which he often thought were caused by increase in input imported import costs rather than domestic import costs. But once you get that spiral, it's self-maintaining. Uh, so you have to find some way to cut that back. And the way that neoclassicals have always favoured is put the unemployment rate up so wage demands fall and therefore you you cut back into the, the rate of inflation that way. Or they've outsourced production to the third world and dramatically cost the cuts of production, which is what we've benefited from in the West for the last 40 years. No, but no one's buying, buying stuff. Yeah. If you if you put if you put people's if you put if you people are unemployed or their salaries have gone down, they can't afford to buy stuff. So wouldn't it be better for the and wouldn't the logical way for the price mechanism to work for companies to say, well, okay, we need people to buy stuff. We need that demand. Uh, we we can supply it. It's going to cost more because wages are, are heavier. But if we can squeeze our other costs so that we're not squeezing wages so much, we will keep demand. And uh, and and we'll be able to do it in a way which is you know we, we can supply at a price where people can afford to buy. Well, what you start getting is firms competing over the markup they've got, and this is what we haven't mm. seen yet. So, so, like if you look again at what happened under COVID with a huge government stimulus, then firms could easily charge whatever markup they like because there's so much more money being created that was turning up in their coffers and they were making their three monthly you know sales targets and so on, or at least their profit results, not so much their sales targets. Um, but what we're what we're seeing now is that if the demand starts to evaporate, if we really fall into a recession with the declining aggregate demand, which I do expect we'll see, then the corporations will respond to that by cutting margins to try to make sure those sales come in through their door rather than through the rivals' door. But that is part of the process to recovery. I get confused when because central banks keep on talking about how it's good that companies are able to pass on 
the increased costs that they're facing. And when I hear that, I'm thinking, well, actually, that's not good, is it? No, because that no. is just going to suppress demand, yeah. ultimately. Yeah, this is, I have done a, a piece, I've forgotten where I published it, uh, but basically saying it was using, actually, on, this, on this, my, my blog and on, on subspace, when you look at Koleski's logic about what causes inflation, he breaks it down into the margin that, we're, that firms can charge above their input costs. Uh, the input costs and the productivity of the input unit you're looking at. And so the standard sort of inflation that neoclassicals have been fighting for, for decades with their interest rate mechanisms and so on and, and, and deregulating unions is the wage, the input cost of wages. And they're reducing the amount that workers get, uh, which, which means that that can bring the price level down. Now, that... The, the other two factors, the productivity, we're seeing that decline now. The declining productivity, you can't do anything to reverse that in terms of using interest rates or you know, the price mechanism to change it. It's just taking longer to make stuff, longer to ship it, higher demurrage costs and so on. And if you're going to try to replace the globalised chain with a local one, then you've got your investment costs turning up there as well. The other part mm. is the margins. And you're not going to have that investment being made so long as interest rates are high because the cost of borrowing is yeah, going up yeah. so much. But the, mar- the, mar- the one part that the soft point left is the margin. And mar- the markup that, c- that firms will put on their input costs reflects the competition they feel with other firms. It, this, this is the different part about that particular mechanism. So if you suddenly have a plunge in aggregate demand, then... Rather than having you know people you know coming in, in your door and the sales being almost automatic and you can charge whatever markup you like, you think, oh damn, the sales have gone down. If I want to get those sales, I've got to reduce my markup, which means the rate of profit falls. Right, but that's and, good old-fashioned competition, Steve, isn't it? Isn't that the way yeah, the economy yeah. is normally supposed yeah. to operate? Yeah, and when that when that happens, then you are going to see that might take the pricing out of the prices, but it'll be. The capitalist class and the profit rate that takes the hit. They're the ones who lose that. Rather than workers this time because we've already screwed workers too far. Well, there we are. Happy days. Uh, (laughs) That's a bit of comeuppance, perhaps. Uh, Anyway, well, let's see how it does play out uh, because, I mean, it could go. I mean, there's a multitude of different variations, aren't there, as to what could uh, what could happen over the over the next twelve months? Because we're sort of in un- in uncharted territories. But you have explained where you think it's heading, and that's great. We'll uh, we'll catch you again next week for another one, Steve. Good to have you on again. Okay, thanks, mate. Bye. And incidentally, we've made this podcast this week freely available to everybody. And the great news is that that is going to be the norm from the end of this month. The debunking economics podcast is going to be free to all because we want to get it out to as many people as possible. So Steve's ideas can be shared more widely. We've got a new website on the way, a new sound and a new look to the podcast as well. So look forward to that at the end of this month uh, and tell your friends about it as well. Uh, The domain where you can see it all is going to be debunkingeconomics.com. Watch that because that will change as well uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, That's it for this week, though. Back again with another one next week. I'm Phil Dobby, back with Steve Keen then. Have a great week. See you next week. 
If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.